You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The Library of Congress National Book Festival is among the most anticipated annual literary gatherings, bringing together authors and readers. In partnership with this year's festival, Washington Post Live features conversations with actor Michael J. Fox and U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo about their recent memoirs. In No Time Like the Future, Fox reflects on his journey with Parkinson's disease and the power of optimism. In Poet Warrior, Harjo discusses her Native American roots and her path to becoming the voice of a nation. Let's listen. Good afternoon, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. In partnership with the Library of Congress National Book Festival, it is my pleasure to welcome one of the stars of this year's lineup, Michael J. Fox, actor, philanthropist, and author of No Time Like the Future, An Optimist Considers Mortality. Michael, welcome to Washington Post Live. Yeah, I have to say, it's, it's a privilege to be interviewed by you. I've been a big fan of your work, and I think you're great. Wow, well, <laughs> well, thank you. This is not how I thought this was going to start, but thank you very much, Michael. This is your fourth book and your third memoir, and in this one, you open by talking about an injury you sustained after spinal surgery in 2018 that resulted in you having to uh, learn to walk again. Um, one, I wanna know why that was, but also what was it about that challenge in particular that forced you to rethink your trademark positive outlook on life? Well, to give a little backstory, I mean, I was, uh, I had had Parkinson's for 30 years at this point. This was 19, uh, excuse me, 2018. And um, and I, so I kind of as said to people I reached a detente with the the, the, the disease. I I would do what I needed to do and I would do what I didn't need to do and we'd get along and we get 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 by and it would gradually take more and more and there'd be more loss. But but it, I felt like on my terms, and so I, I might have been cocky about that. But that's how I felt it was going. And then I had uh, a couple of years previous, I uh, they found a tumor on my spine, a benign tumor, but it was a tumor that was encasing the. Uh, the spinal cord, and, um, and therefore it was going to paralyze me within a couple of years. So, if I wanted to avoid that, I needed to get this surgery, which was really tricky. It was at six hours. It was Johns Hopkins, uh, um, amazing team of doctors and, and uh, assistants, and they did this thing. And but but I was basically for the time being paralyzed. And had to learn to walk again, and literally learn the mechanics of walking. Uh, you know, heel strike, foot transfer, weight transfer. Just give hips forward, shoulders back. I mean, just the basic fundamentals that you see a three-year-old or a two-year-old Tony with in, in the park. You know, getting up and falling down and tumbling over. And that was that was my standard uh, my standard situation. So I, I, I spent a summer rec recouping from this from the surgery, and um, and I was getting to where I could walk a little more independently. And uh, my family were giving me a hard time saying I was being too too cocky and moving too fast. And I said, relax, I'm fine. I know what I'm doing. I'm an athlete, I'm a stuntman, and um, hmm. and uh, so I talked to him to leave me alone in the apartment one day because I was going to go to uh, they were in Martha's Vineyard. I flew back to New York and I was going to go do a, a, a cameo in a Spike Lee produced uh, movie for Netflix. And um, and so I, my daughter was in town. She's the only one in town, and she wanted to stay and get me off to work in the morning. And I said, No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just go home, honey. You work in the morning. You're fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm a grown-up man. I know what I'm doing. I woke up the next morning, I went to get coffee. I stepped in the kitchen, I fell down and I shattered my 
humerus in my left arm. And right. they took, uh, eventually took a, a rod and 19 pins to put it back together. But, but in the meantime, when I just had, just had happened, I, I was lying on the kitchen floor alone. Um, and and uh, I knew that my arm was in bad shape. I just couldn't feel it. And um, I crawled my way over to the wall and got on my cell phone and called my assistant and, and had her call an ambulance and come over. And um, while she was on her way over, I sat there and just ripped myself uh, a new one. And just I just said, this is, this is all the work that people put into you and all, all the effort people put into you and all the belief in you doing your best and you're doing, you're doing the right thing and, and you, you blow it. You're just cocky and you, and you take, a, take a wrong step and, and it's all shattered. You had to learn to walk in and your balance was going to be off. And, and, it, and I just I started to think, what is this like to make lemons out of, lemonade out of lemons? I mean, I'm, I'm, out, I'm out of the lemonade business. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I, can't, I can't put a shine on this. I can't make this happy. I can't make this good. I can't make this. So don't worry. It's just a, just a shattered arm. You know, it, it was, it was um, a real lesson to me in that moment. And I really wallowed in it. And really, it really got, it took me months to get over it. The, 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 it sometimes you, 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 you swear at yourself so severely that, that, that you, you leave scars. You, you can tell you what other people are doing damage to you. You can do damage to yourself by saying the wrong thing to yourself at the wrong time. It's a lasting implication. So mm -hmm. I, I, it took me a long time to, to get over that. You know, Michael, I think you, you write in the book that in that moment that you're talking about is when you hit your, your rock bottom. Um, you were just saying how you were, you were ripping, yourself a, ripping yourself a new one. Um, but you also write a great deal about your dynamic family life. How has, how has life as a family man helped you, you stay positive and main, maintain your sense of what you call realistic optimism? Well, it's, 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 my kids are amazing. Uh, everybody's kids are amazing. But, uh, um, mine, mine are, are, are if they've grown up with this their whole life. My son was the only one who knew me before I was, uh, before I had Parkinson's, but I was an alcoholic at the time. So it, it, it's just it's distorted a view of what was happening. He was three years old or two years old. Um, but he, um, he, he, so he grew up with a real understanding of it, and a real patience with it, and, 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 a, and a, a sixth sense about it, about how to, Negotiate yeah. around it, and as did on my my daughters. My daughters are, are much more um, prone to to want to take care of me than, than my son is. My son's like kind of a, like you know, uh, just knows it, don't run into that tree that dad just ran into. Um, but my daughters are like more stopping hitting the tree. Um, but uh, and I don't I don't I don't promote that a lot. I don't I try to be uh, as independent as I can with my family and let them know that they, they, that their love is enough. They don't have to. And another thing that I, I tend to fall a lot, and um, and my family are always want to grab me and catch me, or stop me from falling. And, and meanwhile, my my brain is doing an elaborate gyroscopic finding its balance, finding its appropriate sense of uh, situation. And and um, and so when they grab me, it all goes to pot, and then we we all go down. So I lose the <laughs> fear of knocking. Down. So it's my family. It's kind of an odd thing because. Like my mother, I haven't hugged my mother in two and a half years because I'm afraid of knocking her down. And then, and then I, I went and saw her, and uh, shortly after there was a pandemic, and I haven't seen her. She's in Canada, so I can finally go. See her. So my wow. family is really important. My, my original family and my 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 acquired family, and uh, and then just the family of Parkinson's patients. 
just it's just it's all about family. It's all about connections. I mean, life is about connections. You live a whole life and you don't make any connections. You don't make any of those bonds, and none of this stuff can be healed. That is a that, that is I agree with you 100% on that. You know, you you mentioned at the beginning of of our conversation that you you have been living with Parkinson's. You were di diagnosed with Parkinson's 30 years ago, and you write in the book that you thought that that diagnosis would be the end of your your acting career. And yet you went on to play some acclaimed roles on television. You played Dr. Kevin Casey on Scrubs. You played Louis Can uh, Canning on The Good Wife, Dwight on Rescue Me. Uh, what attracted you to these characters? And how did you morph your Parkinson's symptoms into what your characters were dealing with? Well, I realized if I wanted, I, I, I dropped out of acting in, in uh, 2000. I left Spin City. Uh, in the capable hands of Charlie Sheen and and uh, and and did um and in in started the foundation which is still going to center and um I decided not to work anymore and um because the doctor said I had ten years left to work and, and so I figured ten years had passed and 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 I wasn't functioning the way I used to I couldn't do work the way I used to I couldn't I didn't be as glib or as quick or as fast or as light on my feet or as acrobatic in a way I just thought all my tools were gone. And, and then I and then I said I had an offer to do uh, my friend Bill Lawrence's show Scrubs, none of that's Ted Lasso, but he did Scrubs at the time, and he um, asked me to do one, and I said you know this, I come with a lot of baggage, and I don't know if I can do this, and when I did it, and I realized that I took the the, the character I had OCD, and I, I took it and and put it through the Parkinson's filter, and and realized that that in a sense everyone has Parkinson's, it's just finding that person's Parkinson's, whatever that is. With Dwight, it was uh, Dwight unrescue me. It was alcoholism and and, and addiction and, and misogyny and uh, general misanthropic behavior. <laughs> and uh, and then Louis Canning. It was Louis Canning was an interesting guy because he was a lawyer who had uh, Parkinson's and he used it uh, to, to 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 cultivate uh, sympathy with the jury. And he would, he would say he would make it all about him. And then he would defend drug companies that were being being, uh, being sued for for mal malfeasance. <laughs> so, so, so no. go ahead. Michael. That, that, I would say that the 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 trick was just not not having the, the weight anymore, being the leading man, being the guy, number one on the call sheet, carrying the show, having all that pressure. I was just this guy could slip in, put on these characters, uh, use my own experience to, to to blend and create a new experience for them, and and do it. And it just became this thing. All of a sudden, it was like a, all of a sudden it was like not like a job anymore. It was a hobby, and um. And it was just a good experience, and it gave me a second act. I realized less is more, which is good, because I had less. And I used more of it. You, you know, Michael, you anticipated my, uh, a question I was going to ask you about um, what you write in the book. I can play anyone as long as they have Parkinson's, and I was discovering everyone has Parkinson's, and you talked about that. But I want you to get to, to talk more, and I think you, you, you just talked about him, Lewis, Lewis Canning. Uh, and I'm bringing this up because I interviewed Robert and Michelle King and Christine Baranski and Audra McDonald uh, from The Good Fight uh, last week. But in that, and you also talked about the fact that um, your your character was peculiar in in ways using using his his Parkinson's as a way of currying favor with juries. But the question is, why do you think that role left such an impression with viewers? I don't know. I tell a story in the book about being at the beach with my wife and 
And um, I went down to the water and tested it out. We both did. And came back. She ran ahead of me and got down in the towel and started dry off. And I, I came up and sat down. And this lady came up and said, Mr. Fox, I, I have a confession to make. And I'm with my wife, and I, I don't want to hear this lady's confession, whatever it is. And but she said that she said I saw you going in the water, and I felt this incredible feeling of loathing and 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 and, and disgust. And I said, oh, that's nice. And she said, yeah. And then I realized it was Louis Canning. That's why. And I said, oh, that's, uh -huh. that's. She just saw Louis Canning going into the water. She said, I hate that guy. Excuse me. And, um, uh, <laughs> She realized that it was me, and then she felt she had to apologize to me for that. And I said, that's the greatest compliment you could ever give me. <laughs> Sorry, you, you, um, true to form, you're making me laugh, Michael. You're making me laugh. I want to go to an, uh, to an audience question. Um, this is a question that comes from the Commonwealth of Virginia, um, from Kimball Boone. She wants to know what parts of your memoir were most challenging to write? I think um, uh, one thing that's hard to write was I, when I had, had this kind of post-operation, uh, uh, kind of psychotic break, the reaction to the, the drugs I take for Parkinson's mixed with the drugs that I took for the, the uh, operation. And I kind of was hallucinating and kind of out of it. Now, it was only tough because at the time I wasn't aware of what was happening, but my, my daughter was there uh, during it. And she was a psychology major, so it was like a field day. It was like a busman's holiday for her. She was watching me go freaky. But, but uh, that was tough. It was tough to write. It was tough to break down other people's observations of what was happening. And, and coupled with my observations from, from, from this kind of uh, damaged uh, position. But then it was also hard to write about my own. So I had to write about Tracy because it, you, 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 I'm not a good enough writer to, 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 to really get to the depth of what that connection is with the person who, who commits to you and uh, commits to you early in, in, in what's going to be a, a long journey and a long slog and a lot of challenges. And she, she committed to me and, and had been with me through all this stuff and, and to this minute is, is, is like aware of everything that's going on with me and, and yet not suffocating me with it and making it my burden that I'm her burden. Um, it's, it's, it's just really a remarkable relationship. And so it's tough to, 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 to pay justice to that, but not go overboard and not make it treacly. We're not really sentimental people. You think with all my optimism and all that stuff that I'd be sentimental. I'm not, I'm not I'm a realist. I mean, I just, I just think that there's, and I mean, I picked up the New York Times the other day and looked at the front page and there were four stories that were all, I don't into them, but they were all just horrible. There's floods and disease and, and uh, social injustice. And, and I just went, it's got to gotta be something in the next page. It's going you know, to make this a little lighter. There's got to be something, not lighter, but but more understandable. If we just understand, and I, if I can understand the, the connections that people have and, and the way that we can help each other and the way that we can get each other through, we don't have to look and say, oh, that person has that. That's their thing. But say, that's my thing. We have this. We all have this, and that's what I have in my family. We all have this, and we we all get by it the best we can. You know, uh, this is your third memoir, and I'm wondering, you know, when you write when you write these memoirs, one does do you have your family read them before uh, before you hand them in to the editor? And I'm wondering what what reactions do you get from your family? 
They're really interesting. My my, my daughters are my daughters are most amazing because they're they're just they're just my daughters and they're, they're they they own me. So whatever they say, they 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 goes double for me. But um, they 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 they're interested. They they track of the broader notes of the, the emotion of the of the message of it or whatever we talk about that. But then they'll then they'll say, no, I I I got a B in this class and I got an A in this class or I I. No, I, I I went here. I went to Sally's on Friday and went to Wendy's on Thursday, and I mean stuff like that. It's really great, and I love that. I said, put that in, and I love creating. Uh, uh, especially my daughter Skylar, who was, was there when I the night before I got hurt, um, recreating conversations with her, where I know that that's what she said, and I know that that's what I said, and I know, and and and, and it's it's just such a beautiful experience. And then have her read it and affirm it and say, yes, that's 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 the way I saw it too. But I saw this other thing that you didn't see that 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 that, that, uh, that I was worried about uh, some potential problems. It's just, it's just it's an interesting thing to delve into family and and, and present these situations. Um, but but I, uh, this book more than any of the others, I really wanted to concentrate on the on the dialogue and the and the communication. It wasn't so much about atmospherics. There was enough atmospherics with the the injuries and the surgeries and all that stuff. But I wanted to concentrate on just conversations between people that love each other and try to help each other and and and, and know that sometimes you can't you just can't you have nothing to bring to it other than love and 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 and, and ultimately that, that that can work you're already close you and your family are already close so you rely on them a lot has having them read through particularly this memoir actually brought you closer? Did you find that you you got closer to people you were already super close to? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I think that my, my son, again, he read it and he, he, he was, he was, uh, it's, it's a funny family. Like we call it, my kids call me dude, but not, not dude like the dude, but D-O-O-D, which I don't know what that means. <laughs> but, but, and, 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 and Tracy and I have a have a kind of a, a, a what was his name? A great director, yeah. Uh, Down in my head, but we, we, that kind of forties, remember? And we just whack at each other with stuff, and, and, and it's fun. It's fun. It's a fun dynamic. Um, mm -hmm. But it, but it but it it means you have to stay invested in it. You have to you, you have to you have to ask what's going on and. One of the things that, that that was really cool, if I can go into this really quickly, and I don't want to jump any question you might have might, you might have had about it, but um, during the pandemic, we were all in the house together. And all the, my son was in Los Angeles, but the, all the girls and crazy and and I and it was great. Like she made meals and we did jigsaw puzzles and we read books and we and we had these great conversations after dinner. My kids and the the stuff in Minnesota was happening, so. Great conversations about that, and great conversations about social injustice and and, and disease and, and and dystopian societies that we may live in, and and, and it just it's just blown away. I just like, come on, where did this come from? And so meanwhile, I have Parkinson's, I have broken arm, I have I have uh, I have um, problems walking, I have my dog died, who I love very much, during the time, and and um um, and yet it was all it's all good. It it, it just is what it is. And and and, and um, you can be real. Like I said, you can be realist and, and, and optimist at the same time, because you see you see this this stuff. And we were aware of the, the fact that well, we were enjoying that space and that time. That people were waving at beds going down, 
hallway corridors that, that we never come back with with their person on it, with their loved one on it. And when that you, you know that reality exists, um, uh, you, 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 it makes you think about the reality that you're enjoying. You know, Michael, we are we are running out of time, so I'm going to ask you real quickly. Can you talk about your foundation, the Michael J. Fox Foundation? Um, the talk about the the progress and and advancements made in the last thirty years. Well, in the last thirty years, since we started, we uh, we've been involved in 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 have happened uh, uh, organically in other ways, but but it all seems to connect. We've found. We're getting new gene modifiers and gene identifiers, and and realizing that that there are certain groups that are that are uh, that are prone and, and likely to get Parkinson's. We're studying them, and we're getting a big thing called PPMI, which is a multi-million-dollar study that trying to find a biomarker. So our hope is uh, our, our soonest hope is 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 that sometime within the next 10, 10 years or so, we'll find a way to identify the disease before. Symptoms are evident, so uh, and we're getting close. Uh, so that that kid going to get a blood test at, at six, and and, and they say mm. he's got Parkinson's, and then we we treat it prophylactically, and it never it never it never um, manifests itself. So that that would be a huge thing. But but as to um, uh, whether or not we come up with an answer in my lifetime, I don't know. I hope so. You know, last question for you, Michael. Um, as a realistic optimist, what is your advice to folks who are struggling to stay positive as we want continue to confront this pandemic, this this uh, coronavirus pandemic, but also um, staying positive for people who are dealing with their own, as you say in your, you know, everyone has everyone has Parkinson's as they deal with their own version of that. I think it's I think it's about acceptance. I think it's about it's about acceptance, and acceptance doesn't mean resignation. It doesn't mean you, you, you can't endeavor to change it, but you have to accept it for what it is. At first, at Parkinson's. Now, what do I do? And I, then it takes up that much space, and I have all this other space that I can work in, and 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 and, and, and thrive, and, and come up with new ways to adapt my life to this to the to this uh, this situation. And it's the same with me. We have to be honest about what's happening. We have to abject. Truths, the things that you start are, are what they are, and you, you accept that, and then and then you can, and it can change. You can find niches in it to, to 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 make it better, but you have to accept it for what it is first. Acceptance, that is the key word. Michael J. Fox, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Great. Please stay with us. I'll be back with U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo after this short video. Welcome back. My next guest is Poet Laureate of the United States, Joy Harjo. She is the author of the new book, Poet Warrior, a memoir. Ms. Harjo, welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, glad to be here. Thank you. Um, you've written a beautiful book about coming into your own as a poet, about growing up, your family, and the people who influenced your life and work. And Poet Laureate, uh, poet, poet Warrior is your second memoir. How did you f first discover your talent for language, lyricism, and expression? Wow, it, it took a while. 
because that was, I always sat in the back of the class and never said anything and was even said to be the shyest kid at Indian school, which is pretty shy. <laughs> it wasn't until, um, in a way, I think poetry came to me. I think there was a bet in the poetry inspiration universe and, and they took bets and the one who lost got me. And <laughs> so it was quite, a, it, it, it's like it almost found me. I started writing out of native rights movements as a student at the University of New Mexico. And what opened the doorway was going out and hearing poets and, and discovering native poets. And that opened the door and I started writing and, and the writing, certainly writing poetry and now music and memoirs, etc. They're, they're teachers of the sort and they're always mm -hmm. teaching. So it's been a long process. I want to highlight a quote that we showed in the, the opening video before we began this conversation. You write in the book, the rhythms of poetry brought me into a circle, like the rhythms of the elders talking and telling stories that always brought me back to the fire that warmed my soul. What can we learn about our own lives by listening to the stories of our ancestors and by connecting with our roots? Well, we're part of that story. I think there's a, a family genealogy, family genealogies, but there are also like stories, genealogies. I've learned in uh, that, I've, I've learned that really genealogy is a story field. It's also how we know history. And there, we are like, we are kind of like a tree, you know, and those stories whether we know them or not, they, they are the stuff that form the marrow in our bones and that give us a kind of sense, even if we're not aware of them. My favorite thing uh, coming up was to go drive my Aunt Lois around the Creek Nation and visit with people and just listen to listen to the stories. And, and they're like food, they're, they're, they're mm -hmm. spiritual food and, and they're they tell us how to live, how not to live, and they alert us to our human condition on on so many levels. You know, you could you could have chosen any number of ways of expression, and I'm thinking in terms of writing. You could have you you could have um, written short stories. You could have written um, you know his, uh, historical fiction, but instead you chose poetry. What is it? about the power of poetry that moves you, but also connects with other people? There's something that pulled me in as a child, and I think it was musical for me. It was musical rhythmic language that made a kind of resonance, a, a pattern like song making. My mother used to recite poetry to me, and she also wrote song lyrics. And there was something, it took me to, and it takes me to a place beyond language, especially poetry, because that's the thing about poetry, the contradictory thing. You're working so intensely uh, with words in a kind of call and response. And, um, and, and yet what you're going for is what can't be said in words, hmm. the kind of that that threads through all of us and it's it's so beautiful sometimes terrifying and intense and we feel we know like grief or like um, um, 
and poetry is enables us to for me it became a way a kind of sacred language to speak about what couldn't be spoken and, and to sing it in a way that gave and gives another whole insight and sense of how the world works and of our place in this unfolding story field. You know, for a long time I was I thought, what use are humans on Earth? <laughs> you know, we can see what all the different animals and creatures and elements do. But what what do we humans what is it what is it we are here to do? What is our purpose here? I mean, everybody asks that. You know, why are we here? But I came to realize that, you know, what we do as humans, we're the story makers. We that's what we do. Like right now, we'll pick up the Washington Post or we'll get on our phones or uh, we call some of us, our generation calls people up. But that's all about making a story. We're all deeply involved in in story making and song making is part of that. You know, Ms. Harter, there's something I, I'm sure folks saw me react to um, and I'm going to garble it what you said earlier about with with poetry sort of like the language of the unsaid. I know I'm messing it up, but it's fast. I, I was fascinated by that because, you know, as a poet, but also for myself as a as a writer, I'm always trying to paint a picture for the for the reader. And it's just sort of the way you put it as a poet, you're using the words, you're putting the words down on the page, but at the same time, you're trying to draw a picture for the reader, but also hopefully propel them to some other realm of understanding. Am I, am I making too much of what you just said? No, it's something like making, it's, it's certainly we use images, but there's also a kind of oral, oral and aural <laughs> sound mm -hmm. making that goes on that makes imprints that way, kind of makes sound imprints, just as it's also making in, in the form and the meaning, there are also imprints of, you know, sort of like mental patterns like rhythms and they all work together. I think a lot of people have the sense that poets are, you know, it's like a cartoon, this inspirational light goes off in your head and you scribble it down and there it is, it's easy. There's a poem, but there are all these elements that have to, for a poem to really work, all of these elements come together. So it's like you can see, you watch somebody go through drafts or you watch a carver carve and find what it is. And, and writing poetry is, is very similar to get it just right. It's always, it's really about listening. That's what I've come to the conclusion. That's the conclusion I've come to. It's like um, when uh, the poetry really, because I, I don't know, you never see, you know, poetry as a career choice at, you know, in school, you know, a desk at career day for poetry. I've come to the conclusion that it's a kind of a kind of a calling. There's a you have to have a deep love for for meaning, for philosophy, for beauty, for terrible truth. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to pick up on what you were just saying ab about listening and talk about your um, sixth generation grandfather, Manawi. Um, you're a, you're a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation, based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you write that your your grandfather Manawi uh, 
stood up against Andrew Jackson and the U.S. government against the illegal move from our homelands. Tell us the story of Manawi. Oh, where do I start? A lot of the story I know because of, of my Aunt Lois and other relatives talking about him, but he's also in the history books. And uh, he was quite a character. His uh, mother was, was Muscogee Creek. His father was, there were a lot of Scottish people coming in. His father was Scottish and he came of age during a time of, um, I guess he, he managed, he had stores, um, stores, cattle, and um, became, I guess Tecumseh came down to the southeast part of the United States when he was, uh, natives were talking about the Great Alliance or how do we handle this influx and, and how do we keep our cultures, how do we keep our cultures and, and keep our people going as who we are in the midst of this immense change. And he and other, you know, other tribal, there were, you know, tribal warriors got together and decided to, um, you know, to stand up against this injustice. And his, he was one of many, you know, his name is known, but there, there are always so many whose names aren't known who are also there. And at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, uh, they stood up against Andrew Jackson, but um, that wound up, that didn't wind up good well for us. He got, he survived seven shotgun wounds and uh, lost his uh, second wife and children in that uh, at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. He wound up in one of the last immigrating parties with uh, the Fish Pond Miko, the leader of that that um, that ceremonial town that that uh, that town, and uh, went across went across uh, Mississippi, Arkansas. But he was known. The thing that you don't find in the in any uh, history books is. He was known for his parties. He was a very oh. he was very well known for his giving a good party. And so one of the stories I came across in the immigration records was that and poets research, by the way, <laughs> in the immigration <laughs> records was that um, the the uh, the officer was pretty irritated because he was trying to get them to keep moving. They were near Memphis, and Manahu said, "No, we're gonna." He he threw one of his big parties and. That went on for days, and so he had to wait it out until they were all ready to, all ready to move again. Wait, parties for days? What would happen at these parties? What happens at any? People hang out, tell stories. There you go. <laughs> Telling stories, <laughs> having good food. What happens at any good party? And I think, I think that was true for everyone. You know, we all used to. Now we're bound by the weekend, you know, Monday through Friday weekend, it wasn't always that way, you know, and I think we used to um, meet, meet a lot longer, you know, we would, stories could go on for days. I think that's true for all people. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned in the intro, Poet War Warrior is a memoir, it's Poet Warrior, a memoir. You write about some tough times uh, in this book, including abuse of inflicted on you by your stepfather. What was the most challenging part of writing this this memoir? Those parts are always difficult. I mean, I think it's important in any situation, and I liked a lot of what Michael J. Fox was saying, even about his own situation, about kind of not judging that the story unwinds and the pieces are there. And so that, those are the most difficult parts 
But one, I think my favorite line or what gave me one of the lines that uh, it came to me was after my stepfather passed and I was at, I went to the funeral because my mother asked, I didn't want to go. And afterwards I sat with my, my stepsister, his daughter, who was almost the same age as my mother. And she was always there for me because she had been through it all too with him. And we were sitting out in the car outside talking about his story and what had happened because I wanted to understand. I, 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 uh, I wanted to have, it, it helps to have the pieces. It doesn't change that, well, this is what happened because it happened. But at the end of writing that, because writing is an active process, I don't always know it's going to happen and things, that's, that's what's amazing about create in for any creative artist is that discovery what happened in the discovery because writing is a discovery process at the end of that here came the line you know i learned that even the monster has a story mm. and i wrote that and i thought wow that's thank you for that for that insight you know the place it comes from you know that that place the the place we all come from um, because we're all moving through this world for for insight and for knowledge that will not only help us and our families, but could be useful to everyone. But when that line came, I had to sit there for a while and go, wow, that's true. You know, even the monster has a story. You know, Ms. Harger, what is the one thing you hope people uh, take away from Poet Warrior? That, that everyone has a, <laughs> everyone has a story that everyone has a story and all the stories are important that that just because someone may have more status by money skin color you know all the things that um gender that all the stories there's no hierarchy we're all you know all of our stories we're all part of the larger story um I want to broaden the, the conversation out a bit. You are the first Native American Poet Laureate of the United States. You are serving your third term. And today, there are more Indigenous people in Congress than ever before, and also in the cabinet. Deb Holland is the first Native American cabinet secretary. But of course, representation wasn't always there. What is the, for, talk about from your perspective, what is the power and responsibility of being first? and of telling the stories of your community? There, I have been aware of that responsibility since I was a child or young, since I was a young person making art. There's always this awareness of where I come from, the people, and a great love that was passed down to me from my family for our people and for our people's stories and for our people's art. Um, I see myself as someone holding the door open, sort of like a, not a doorkeeper because a doorkeeper is just somebody saying, okay, I might be the first, but I'm not the last. And there are many. That's one reason the Library of Congress project came about to highlight, um, to highlight other native poets. You know, over, over the last few years, Americans of all walks of life have been reckoning with 
our history, with American history, particularly when it comes to race. I'm wondering, what do American textbooks in depictions in popular culture get wrong? And, and what, should we, what should we understand about the history of First Peoples? Man, where do I start with that one? Because it's still so present. I mean, we, all of us struggle so hard to shift, to shift that narrative of the stereotypes, and I don't want to name them. Everybody knows them. But I always say, well, my grandmother, Naomi Harjo, played saxophone in Indian Territory. Put that in your book of images of natives. But I, you know, when I was coming up as a young artist, I thought, if I do anything else, in my life with my art whatever that art is i want people to see us as human beings and that's a tragedy in those stereotypes because in those stereotypes we are not human beings yet in our we're in our real life we're you know we're we're the original peoples the original nations of of this country we have uh, we have languages we have philosophical systems um, and we're here. Sometimes we're not seen as here if we're not wearing our traditional outfits or we don't look a certain way, but we are everywhere in this country and we are part of you and we are, um, we are achievers. We have stories that are just as complex as any other person's story. And there is no really American culture without the baseline of indigenous knowledge, story, history, and poetry. Mm -hmm. And you know, to add to your point about you know, not just stereotypes, but um, Native peoples being human beings, the, the words that came to my mind were also three-dimensional. That yeah. you know, not only not viewed as you know all people of color, not viewed as human beings, not even viewed as three-dimensional complex characters in the history and story uh, of this country. Um, Ms. Arjo, I want to um, uh, bring up two questions that we have, two audience questions. Sorry, I had a little <laughs> brain freeze there for a second. The first question comes from Tim Lee, uh, and Tim asks. There's Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate. Do you feel that the history of racial injustice and abuse towards Native Americans is being ignored? Yes, in all of this is that it's, it's like what always happens with the Native story or the Native place. Usually our numbers are even much higher than any other group when it comes to these racial injustices. And yet we are always, we're either called, as it happened not too long ago, something else or other, which is strange in a country in which, um, you know, we were not that long ago, we were 100% of the population to be, you know, we've been other. So yes, we're often, you, it's, it, it happens constantly in the, in the unfolding American story on social media and in uh, in the in the media at large, is that we're we're considered well our numbers. I've heard I've heard I have a lot of stories. Well, your numbers aren't that large, or we're not going to promote this because um, the the numbers are so low, or you know as if 
as if we're not part of the story, as if we don't matter. Um, May Fay from California writes, or asks, what is your foremost concern for Native American communities in the U.S. today? Uh, foremost. I think it's important for, I keep thinking of the, the children and the young people and how any community, you know, there needs to be, I don't know, I just think of, that is, that's such a big question because I, there's like, I have several, <laughs> I'm thinking about everything. I'm thinking about how, uh, what was so important, again, that we're seen as human beings, but that, um, that even in the states, and I, I won't get too particular here, that we're seeing, you know, we are sovereign nations in this country, and that we are, it's important that we are, you know, there are more, there are more laws in the law books, federal law books, there are more federal laws dealing with native peoples than um, any other kind of law. So my concern is that we maintain our sovereignty and we maintain our individuality as native nations and as, um, as human beings and that the children have, the children have everything they need to grow themselves as healthy uh, human beings and um, beings that, and, and that, that the children know that they come from, uh, you know, how they have powerful cultural ancestry and stories that um, link them together and, and really link all of us together. That's kind of a very rough, <laughs> a rough hewn, a really rough hewn answer. If I wrote it down, I could finesse it. <laughs> You know, in this conversation, but certainly through your poetry and your writing, you are inspirational. You are an inspirational person. You inspire people. But I'm just wondering, who inspires you? Is there a musician or an artist or a writer, someone from whom you derive inspiration? Oh, well, I was saying the other day that one of the highlights of this year was getting to speak with Wayne Shorter on the phone, <laughs> you know, which is wow. jazz sax. I mean, those are some of my some of my heroes. Actually, there are more native jazz players per group than any other group. So it's a little fact and a lot of people don't know. So a lot of my heroes are there, but there's someone, you know, Leslie Silco on Laguna poet. I knew her first as a poet, but storyteller, uh, no, uh, novelist, and short story writer inspired, continues to inspire me. And her writing had a lot to do with me becoming hmm. a poet. And then on, on, on that note, in the minute that we have left, what has it meant for you to be the U.S. Poet Laureate during this time in our history and to be serving a rare third term? It's quite an honor, and sometimes it takes me a while to process things, so I will have a really good answer when this is over. <laughs> but <laughs> like I said, to, to be in this position, I, again, I see myself as someone holding open a door for poetry, for poets, for, for poetry, for the place of poetry 
in, a, in, in this society that, as we've come to see during these trials of the last years, that how much we need what poetry gives us. Poetry gives us uh, a language that can uh, circumvent and make a pathway through uh, political speech, through, through rhetoric. And uh, so it's, it's, quite a, it's been quite an honor and a responsibility in three terms. It's not because I'm special, but there is a, a pandemic going on and apparently it's still going on. I also wanted to say too that mm -hmm. I, you know, standing here in this position that I like that I'm standing alongside Deb Holland and De who is the Secretary of Interior. And Deb and I go way back. She was my poetry student at the University of New Mexico and is a very good poet. And uh, I have watched her journey along the way and we are also proud of her. Joy Harjo, Poet Laureate of the United States. Thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. And thanks again to Michael J. Fox for joining us. And thank you for tuning in. Head to WashingtonPostLive.com to find more information about our upcoming events and to register. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.